Welcome to Britt David Podcast, as we welcome Sage Valfrey, our new pastor to the next gen, as he brings a message from Hosea 2, verses 6 through 15. Sage states, God will abolish all idolatry in us in order to make us look more like him. Here's Pastor Sage. Hello. How you doing, church? Today we're going to be in the book of Hosea. It's one of the small, small books right before the New Testament. So y'all go ahead and start turning there. Uh, I always like to give a, well, first let me say this. I'm so, so thankful for this opportunity to come and to preach here on a Sunday night. You guys have been nothing but, but gracious and loving and kind to Destiny and I. And uh, we're just, we're very thankful for you guys. So thank you for this. Thank you for this opportunity. So main point of the message, I always do a main point. The main point of tonight's message is this. God will abolish all idolatry in us in order to make us look more like him. God will abolish all idolatry in us in order to make us look more like him. So as you know already, I am married. It's my wife right there on the front row, Destiny. We've been married for 10 months now. We got married May 8th of 2021. So we've been in it for kind of a long time. I know (laughs) you guys don't have to clap. I understand. Just kidding. Obviously, it hasn't been that long, but I've learned so much in marriage and so much about marriage, of course, being in it. And I'm incredibly thankful for the concept of marriage and, and what it represents in the Bible. Destiny, she's my best friend. She's been there for me in my lowest times. She's forgiven me when she's had absolutely no reason to. And I'm thankful for her. And the, the biggest part of marriage that, that we get to see, that I've seen especially, is that you represent and you get to show Christ to one another. That's something that she's done in an amazing way for me. Some of the most real ways I've ever seen in my life. I've seen it in my marriage. And I try with her, and I fail tremendously often. But I try. Someone told me recently that marriage is just, uh, it's, it's, it's just a couple being brought together with a piece of paper, a, a legal document. And I think that that is kind of ridiculous. And that's absolutely not the view of marriage that we see in the Bible. In the Bible, we see this beautiful symbolic covenant between two broken souls coming together and God, God himself, our creator and sustainer. Marriage is a very good thing and it's an important thing, especially what we see in the biblical narrative because the symbolic part is this. Jesus Christ, he calls himself the bridegroom and he calls the church his bride. And Jesus, although he's not there with us, here with us physically in our presence, he is here with us spiritually inside of us, inside of believers. Physically, he is not because he is preparing a place for his bride right now for the church. So it's so exciting. He's preparing this place for us. See, there's, a, there's someone that, somewhere that we're gonna go, this, this new heaven and this new, her, new earth. It is a good thing. But I think a lot of times we forget about the messier side of the symbolism of, of the marriage in this symbolism that I'm talking about. You might not know what I'm talking about. So if you know anything about the, the book of Hosea, then you know about the messy side of this marriage between Christ and the church. So the book of Hosea, it was written by a guy named Hosea. He was a prophet. At this time in history, when he was writing it, the nation of Israel was split into two different kingdoms. So they were just Israel, and then they were split because they didn't, agree on who the king should be. And so one kept the name of Israel and then the other kingdom was Judah. 
Judah actually didn't do too terribly at following the Lord. They continued. They still fell into idolatry, which led to their judgment by Babylon. And Israel did absolutely terrible. They, they messed up. They continued to go down this path of idolatry and worshiping these false gods, and it just it didn't go well for them. Judah held strong to the Lord, but still fell to idolatry. Israel was not as strong. Israel was in deep idolatrous sin, worshiping false gods, ascribing all of God's blessings to these false gods, such as Baal. So they messed up. They messed up a lot. And the prophet during this time, there was a few different prophets, but Hosea. Hosea was a prophet during a portion of this time. He was no ordinary prophet, though. God used Hosea's life to model out his relationship with Israel. He did this by doing something crazy. God commanded Hosea to marry a promiscuous woman. What, what is that referring to? Well, a lot of people believe, and I believe this, a promiscuous woman, he's talking about a prostitute. He commanded Hosea, a prophet, a man of God, to marry a prostitute. Now, why would he do this? This doesn't make any sense. It doesn't seem to, at least. Hosea obeyed. He married a prostitute. Her name was Gomer. So if you guys need any baby names, I think Gomer is definitely one. I'm just, I'm just kidding. If there's a Gomer out here, I'm so sorry. <laughs> it's just a, your name's great, I promise it is. Hosea married a prostitute named Gomer. As you could have guessed, Hosea and Gomer's relationship uh, was far from perfect. While Hosea was constantly fighting to protect Gomer from the world's impurities, Gomer continued to commit adultery and prostitute herself to other men. This was not a one-time slip-up, but this was Gomer's lifestyle, and she was still in it. It got so bad, in fact, that she ends up in a sex slave-like trade auction, and Hosea has to go and buy her out of it. Imagine the frustration and the heartache of Hosea that his bride will not stay by his side, will not stay with him, but continues to run away, just doesn't want to be there. How frustrating that would be. So God sends Hosea into this lifestyle, married to a prostitute. And he does this as an example to how to, for Israel to see how they treated God, their husband, their bridegroom. While God remained faithful to Israel, she, Israel, was prostituting herself to other false gods. God blessed the nation of Israel and made it great, strengthened Israel, gave Israel so much goodness. And Israel said, thank you, Baal. And they worshiped Baal and these other false gods saying that Baal did this. It's completely wrong. See, God is the faithful, the faithful husband and Israel is the unfaithful bride. And this brings us to our text. We are picking up at verse six of chapter two in Hosea. Verse six of chapter two. I know it seems strange picking up in the middle of it, but I assure you it'll make sense. Uh, before verse six, God has told Hosea to rebuke Israel for her sin. He actually refers to Israel as Hosea's mother. And you'll, if you read the book of Hosea, you'll notice a lot of graphic um, language throughout it. And the, the purpose of that graphic language is to emphasize the severity of Israel's sin and therefore, in turn, emphasize the severity of Israel's sin's consequences. That's why you'll, you'll read through it and you're like, man, this is some harsh words. There's reason for it. In verse 6, God begins to tell Hosea what he will do in order to rip Israel away from her lovers and her idols. So this is what we're talking about. We're talking about tonight how God intended to and ended up continuing to do, rip Israel apart from her lovers or her, her idols. The, the passages, I'm breaking it up into three different uh, structures. The first is uh, 
verses six through 13, this is how God will bring Israel away from her idols. Then verses 14 through 15, the first part of 15, God will bring Israel closer to him, not just away from the idols, but closer to God. And then how Israel will respond to this. And that's the very last sentence of this passage that we're going through. So we're beginning in verses 16 through 13. I'm gonna go ahead and read it. I'm gonna read the whole passage, all of it, and then we're gonna pray and then we'll go right into it. So starting in verse six of chapter two. Therefore, this is what I will do. This is God talking to Hosea about Israel. I will block her away with thorns. I will enclose her with the wall so that she cannot find her paths. She will pursue her lovers, but not catch them. She will look for them, but not find them. She will think I will go back to my former husband for then it was better for me than now. She does not recognize that it is I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the, and the fresh oil. I lavished silver and gold on her, which they used for bail. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my new wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my linen, which were to cover her nakedness. Now I will expose her shame in the sight of her lovers and no one will rescue her from my power. I will put an end to all her celebrations, her feasts, new moons and Sabbaths, all her festivals. I will devastate her vines and fig trees that her lovers have given her. I will turn them into a thicket and the wild animals will eat them. I will punish her for the days of the bales to which she burned incense. She put on her rings and her jewelry and followed her lovers, but she forgot me. This is the Lord's declaration. Verse 14, therefore, I'm going to persuade her, lead her into the wilderness, speak tenderly to her. There I will give her vineyards back to her and make the Valley of Acre into a gateway of hope. There she will respond as she did in the days of her youth, as in the day she came out of the land of Egypt. Let's pray. God, we love you so much, and we're so thankful that we can look back at these Old Testament texts and see you, Jesus Christ, still written all throughout it, and see your salvation plan even with the nation of Israel. I pray that you'd speak through me tonight. Don't let a word come from my mouth that is my own. Instead, Lord, I pray that you would speak that you'd speak to the hearts of these believers here and any non-believers. We love you, Lord, in your son's name. Amen. All right, starting in verses six and seven. Actually, there's, so with each section that I gave there, first we're starting with how God will bring Israel away from her idols. He does this in five ways. There's five ways. The first one is, this, I like to break it up like that just in case anyone in here takes notes. I think it's good to take notes. Helps me remember things. So in case you take notes, I hope this is helpful. The first way, he will enclose her. See, Israel was so sick in her sin of idolatry that the only way to wake her up from this drunken stupor was to close her off from the idols. You might be wondering, Sage, why are you, why are you talking about drunken stupor? What does it have to do with it? So when Israel is so filled with this passion for, the, for her idols, she is so lost in her mind about this. You guys know this if you think about it in your life. When you get so obsessed over something, it's like you, you just can't think right. And usually you actually see this more in other people rather than yourself. In yourself, you don't notice it. And other people, you're like, what's going on? They're sacrificing everything for this. This is where Israel's at, and, and they're in a drunken stupor. They're not in a sober state. So God essentially blinded her from seeing her lovers at the end, at the end and at the end of verse seven, we see that this actually works. So remember verses six and seven, he says that I will block her away with thorns, I will enclose her with the wall so that she cannot find her paths. She'll pursue her lovers, but not catch them. This was so that she could forget almost about her lovers and remember God, remember her sustainer, her creator, her husband. And we see that this actually works. In verse seven, God says, then she will think, I will go back to my former husband for then it was better for me than now. 
This is the same strategy as that of a drug addict. When someone is addicted to drugs, to hard, really, really bad drugs, it's all that they see, it's all that they know. I've heard stories of men giving the clothes off their back just for a hit. It's horrible, the effect that that has on people, just completely horrible. And there are some drug addicts that get in the state and they realize that the only way they can come clean is if they turn themselves into jail, and they will. And in this, they will be enclosing themselves, blocking off any source of drugs in the area. Because if they try to get clean, still in that drug-ridden neighborhood, guess what? Probably not gonna work. Because when you're that deep into sin, you just don't have the willpower. You don't. That's just the, that's, that's the real, that's the realistic nature of it. Point two, next thing God will do, he will take away her blessings. We see this in verses eight and nine and verse 12. He says, she does not recognize that it is I who gave her the grain, the new wine and the fresh oil. I lavished silver and gold on her, which they used for Baal. See, God loved his people. He did, he loved his people so much. In Israel, at this point in history, they were a strong nation. They were strong because God had blessed them. God gave them, he gave them strength. He gave them power. He gave them prosperity also that they can flourish and that they can make his name known more. But what did they do instead? They worshiped false gods. They said, they said, as God says here, they used these things for Baal. They used all that good stuff that God gave them for Baal. Baal is a false god, um, a prevalent false god in the, the Old Testament, if you didn't know. God loved his people so much that he lavished them with strength as a nation, with riches, with property, with good crops and nice things. Israel was prospering. But also see that God loved his people enough that he was gonna take these blessings away. That's what he says. He says, I gave them these things. They ascribed it to Baal. I'm gonna take it back. Some people might think, but that's not love. That's so hateful of him to do that. Not at all. That's the most loving thing he can do to wake them up from where they're at. Then he says, I will take back my grain in its time, my new wine in its season. I will take my wool and my linen, which were to cover her nakedness. I will devastate her vines and fig trees. She thinks that these are her wages and that her lovers have given her. I will turn them into a thicket and the wild animals will eat them. In order for Israel to see that God is the giver of their blessings, he must take away the blessings first. This will wake Israel up to see it is he who really blessed them. Third point, he will expose her. We see that in verse 10. God says, I will expose her shame in the sight of her lovers and no one will rescue her from my power. Looking at this verse, it seems that God had intentions and what he was talking about here was he was going to embarrass or humiliate Israel. In Israel's case, this was referring to Israel being exposed to the surrounding nations as being weak and lost. Because guess what? Israel was strong. As soon as those other nations saw a weak point, they were gonna swoop in and they were gonna take them down. That's what happened. That happened with Assyria. Assyria saw that Israel was weak and they came in and God judged Israel with Assyria. This exposure would humble Israel. It would bring them back to ground level and see that they are nothing without the Lord, without God. Number four, God will end her fake worship. Verse 11, he says, I will put an end to all her celebrations, her feasts, new moons, Sabbaths, and all her festivals. Israel was constantly sinning against God. They were constantly worshiping other gods in a bunch of different ways that were just even more sinful. And as they were doing this, 
They were mixing in God worship, the one true God worship. They were mixing in their new moon festivals. Basically, all these festivals were from the Mosaic law to, um, to, to worship God and to remember things that he had done. So they would go, they'd, they'd worship these false gods, and then they'd turn around and then they'd worship the one true God, and then they'd say, that's enough. As long as I'm doing this, then it covers everything. Like, I'm okay, I can do whatever else I want. This is fake worship. This is false worship. This worship that Israel was partaking in was not real. They only sought to check a box on a list of things that they should do in order to be considered a Jew. Number five, he will punish her. The verse specifically says, I will, God says, I will punish her for the days of the Baals to which she burned incense. She put on her rings and her jewelry and followed her lovers, but she forgot me. The punishment being referred to here is the judgment of Israel for their sin. This led to Israel's destruction. Assyria was a nasty, nasty nation, pagan nation, and God used Assyria to judge Israel for what they had done. Many people hear this. They hear God saying that he's gonna punish Israel. And they're like, that's, that's not loving. They go back to that same thing. That's not loving, loving of God to do. But I would again, well, in this case, I would say parents in here, is it loving of you to punish your child? I know you all would say, yes. Because if you don't punish your child, your child will never learn that what they're doing is wrong. The punishment is important for Israel to see that what they're doing is evil and wicked. It is sinful and wrong. If there's any parents in here that do not punish their children, I encourage you to do that. I encourage you to. <laughs> Otherwise, they're gonna keep doing the wrong thing and they'll never realize it until one day they're an adult and still doing that. This is not unloving of God, but it is loving of him. Israel sought to appease these dead, non-existent gods and completely forgot about the one true God, the Lord himself. And this led to their punishment. So, so far you're thinking, man, Sage, this is a really depressing passage. Why are we talking about this? Well, now we go to the second section of this, how God will bring Israel closer to himself. He doesn't leave it there. He doesn't leave them broken down, beaten, punished. But now he wants to bring them closer to him. And he does that in verses 14 through 15. And there's another five points. First, he will persuade her. God must allure the idolatrous nation because she is not in her right mind. She is so filled with passion that her lovers, that she, with her lovers, for her lovers, that she must be persuaded to move away. God has to persuade her. He has to allure her, is what the word actually means, away from the sin. And then what's he do next? Where does he take her? Number two, he will lead her into the wilderness. We see that in the second half, or the second part of verse 14. The actual verse says this, Verse 14 says, therefore I'm going to persuade her, lead her to the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. So what does this mean? Why would God lead her into the wilderness? Is he gonna take Israel out of the nation back into the wilderness? Is that what's happening here? Not exactly. The wilderness is something we see a lot of in the Old Testament, especially in Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. This, is, this was a place, the wilderness, for the nation of Israel to wander, to struggle, to complain, to fight for years and years and years. And symbolically, when you look at Israel, symbolically, we see something great and just beautiful. And that's the overall arching theme that we're gonna be looking at tonight, is that when Israel was in Egypt, they were enslaved to Egypt. They were chained to Egypt, that was it. That's all they knew was slavery. And then God sent Moses a figure, a Christ-like figure, a, mess a messianic figure, to save them out of that. God saved them from their sin. 
He saved them from, sorry, not their sin. He saved them from slavery. But the symbolism there is how we are saved from our slavery, slavery by Jesus. He brings us out of it. He breaks our chains. And then the next part is sanctification. Have you guys heard of the word sanctification before? Some of you have maybe, yeah. So sanctification is the process of being made more holy, being made to look more like, in our case, or in all cases, more like Jesus. The wilderness is what that represents. It represents Israel's sanctification. Sanctification is not an easy process. It's not a process that you go through in a year and then you're good and you're sanctified. Congratulations, you're perfect. We all know none of us are perfect. Sanctification begins at the beginning of your walk, at the point of salvation, and it goes on until your death or Jesus' return. You're being sanctified your whole life. All things that are thrown at you, it feels like, are sanctifying you and making you look more like Jesus. Join us tomorrow as Pastor Sage continues this great message from Hosea, chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Pastor Sage would love to connect and share with you about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and how you can know that you know that Jesus is your Savior and Lord. That address is churchoffice at brittdavid.org. We are located at 2801 West Britt David Road, Columbus, Georgia, 31909. Thanks again for joining us here on Britt David Podcast.